book of Acts in chapter 2, and uh, verse 37 to 41, which I I read in your hearing just a moment ago. Uh, One of of Luke's major purposes for writing this, this book of Acts is to encourage believers about the divine plan, the divine purpose behind the existence of the church. And so to convince us of the uniqueness of, his ch- of the church, uniqueness of his message, the uniqueness of its, of its mission, that this is a, really a God-ordained institution, that the church has the very backing of, of God. Uh, and he does this by, by this, this whole book, which is a, a detailed retelling and recounting about how God laid the apostolic foundations of the church and, and, and had a plan for it to spread to the nations. Um, and of course, this plan is fulfilled um, by the, the presence of the living Christ among the church. So, 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 so uh, the church is not left to its own devices, it's not working its own strength. Uh, but, but the story of Pentecost is a story, and so we've been in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And the day of Pentecost is, is, is Luke telling us that, that God gave the church divine enablement, right? The church was divinely supported to do its work. The church will be divinely supported to do its work. But, but even more so, it's not like God uh, simply just gives the church a gift of power, as it were. First of all, the Holy Spirit is God himself. So in the outpouring of the Spirit, God is testifying that he is present in the church. The church's power is, is God himself. But, but of course, as we saw last week, it's Jesus who pours out his Spirit. And, and so remember in, in, in the first verse of his book, Luke says, I'm telling you about what Jesus began to do. He began to do this and began to do and teach before he ascended to heaven. So when Jesus Christ was on earth, he started the work. When he went to heaven, and now that he is in heaven, he carries on the work. But he carries on that work through the church. So yes, God gives the church power. um, But that power is the very spirit of Jesus Christ working in the church so that what the church does and what the church accomplishes is what Jesus Christ is accomplishing. Jesus Christ is working through his church. And so it comes as no surprise that in, as this chapter draws to a close, chapter 2, where Luke makes the clear statement that uh, the Spirit was poured upon the church, where Luke makes the clear statement that that pouring out of the Spirit was evidence that Jesus is King and rules over, and th- over his church and works through his church, that he should close with the account of how this led to the, the growth of the church. And, and that's what he does. He, he closes in chapter 2 by telling us um, that the, the kingship of Jesus Christ means the increase of the church. The kingship of Jesus Christ means the growth of the church. Um, it means that particularly in two ways. One, one in the, if you want, in the success of its evangelism. The church is evangelistic. It, it, it goes out. I mean, we, we see this already in preaching. Preaching is not simply the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation of Jesus Christ so that men and women may come to him. It's evangelistic. It has, it has a persuasive element. Um, but not only is it evangelism, we're not going to look at this tonight, we'll look at this next week, but it's also that the church is fellowship, right? Uh, sometimes folks get that wrong uh, by ignoring a balance that is um, evident in the New Testament. The church has evangelistic duty, yeah, because Jesus Christ told us to go into the world and to make disciples and to, and, and to proclaim the gospel and, and for men to come and trust him. But the church is also... In fact, the church is fundamentally the house of God, and so it has a duty of, of fellowship. It has a duty to, it has an inward duty, a duty towards itself, it has an outward duty. Um, it, it can only perform its outward duty when it's performing that inward duty well. And, and so Luke tells us that as well, that the presence of the Spirit among the believers meant that they, they grew in fellowship. 
Um, so these two snapshots, he gives snapshots if you want, he gives us a reality that when the Spirit came upon the church, they, become, they became involved in this work of evangelism. God, Jesus Christ was, was working through the church to bring his lost sheep home. Uh, and then he tells us, and there was also the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the deepening of the, the bonds between these Christians who are the family of God and the things they did that, um, the, the way they lived amongst each other, the things they did with each other that characterized them as the, the fellowship of God's people. So tonight we look at the, the first, because um, it's Luke's accounting of these things are so rich. And, and the first thing in verse 37 to 41 is, is how Luke tells us of, of this, this, the first evangelistic mission of the church. So we had looked in the past few weeks at Peter's sermon and how Peter proclaimed Jesus as king and, and how Peter proclaimed this in front of the Jews and so on. Here is the effects of that sermon. How are the effects of that sermon? Um, the sermon, as I said, was evangelistic, and God used it to add to the church. And quite simply, we can follow the, the pattern that's inherent in this section uh, to remind ourselves of the nature of the church's mission, of the nature of faithful evangelism, of some of the main things that happen when God uses his church, uses his people to save souls. What takes place? What are the mechanics, uh, if you want, of how God adds to his church? How God adds to his church. And I want to draw your attention to uh, these three things. One is what we learn about the nature of the preacher or the preaching of the church. It's proclamation um, in, in these verses, what they, what they preached and what they proclaimed, their doctrine, if you want. Two is the, the nature of the responses. Luke is careful to tell us certain details about how those who heard the preaching responded. And that's important for us to remind ourselves of what genuine conversion looks like. You know, very often, so this passage closes, right, uh, the section I've just read, with the testimony that 3,000 souls were added. Uh, but very often, folks want to run to the 3,000 and ignore the process, right? They, 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 they're hungry for the numbers, but they forget that without the process that you see here, you miss something crucial, and I'm going to say this at the end, but what's crucial about that statement in verse 41 is that evidently it's God that's doing the adding. God is calling his, his own home. You can't build the church. So, so if you run after just the 3,000, you may have your own group of people. You won't have God's church. And one of the ways you'll know that is in the process, is a way through which God works. At least we see a way through which God works here in the book of Acts. All right, there's, 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 there's a way that God has designed to, um, th th there's means that God has designed to use. And that includes, as I say, the responses of the people that lets us know this is authentic. If you want, for us, the correction will be, this is what authentic evangelism looks like. This is what authentic conversion looks like. And then lastly, the, the power of God is very present. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's something that we must not, uh, Peter, Luke is not ashamed to, to stress, that God's power is at work and, and reminded to us that that's what we need above all things when we do gospel work is we need the power of God. So firstly, the, the preaching, uh, what, what is it that's distinctive about the preaching of the first church? What, what kind of preaching is it? What kind of ministry is it that God blesses so that souls are added, so that souls are one? Verse, the, the first thing is just in the context. So verse 37 says, now when they heard this, what did they hear? That later on says, meant, meant that they were cut to the heart. What did they hear? Well, you know what they've heard. You've been here for the past two Sundays. They heard that Jesus Christ who they rejected, the Messiah who they, they, they crucified, who they maligned, has now been exalted as the risen Lord. They heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's, that's one way to summarize it. They, they preached Christ and him crucified. That's what led to the addition to the first church. That's what brought 
God's lost sheep home was the proclamation that Jesus is king. The proclamation that Jesus Christ has died for sin. The proclamation that Jesus Christ rose again. They preached Christ. Uh, and, and very clearly, uh, the, 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 the preaching of the apostles was, was, was scriptural. It was scriptural preaching. Now, now, it's important to say that in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the preaching is to Jewish folk. It's, to, it's the day of Pentecost. There's a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. So they're familiar with the text. They're familiar with the Old Testament text. Either way, though, so that, that, might, that might affect the amount of Old Testament preaching, or sorry, or, or scriptural, scriptures that are used and the, the depth. So there's, a, there's a, actually quite a, uh, almost an advanced level of scripture use in chapter 2, right? And I'm not suggesting then that we don't take note of how much people understand of the scriptures before, when we preach to them. But what is clear is, that the preaching that God uses to build his church is, is preaching that fr- through the scriptures testifies about Jesus Christ. It's not just any Jesus, it's the Jesus of the Bible. They preached Christ, that was their preaching, they, they preached him. You couldn't leave that meeting without knowing these folks believed in Jesus. Now, regardless of the audience in the book of Acts, that's one thing that was always clear. Jesus was preached, right? You couldn't leave without realizing these people believed in Jesus, and particularly, they believed in certain events about Jesus. They believed he died. They believed he rose again. They believed he was the king. It, it, It might seem strange, it should seem, but I don't think it's that strange, that very often you can hear preaching in churches that does not affirm the same things. That even in, even today in some churches, you can see people claiming to do the work of outreach and evangelism, and yet they speak so little about who Jesus Christ is. They, they might get numbers, they won't be building the house of God. They preach Christ, and Ultimately, in the book of Acts, they preach Christ as the king. He's exalted. That's the big emphasis. It's, he's, he's, Jesus Christ is the, the greater David. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He's, he's a king. He, he reigns. And, and so what that meant was, because Jesus is king, there are some implications. Because Jesus has been crowned as king, there are implications. You, you could either submit to his kingship and love his reign and be his friend and so participate in the, uh, the joy that his enthronement brings, participate in the prosperity of his reign, or you could persist in rebellion and refuse to have Jesus reign over you, and that has, that has its consequences. So, so the, 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 the first church realized that Jesus was king. Because he was a king, he, you, you, it was important for everyone to submit to him. And so the preaching, there's other things that then are distinguished about the preaching that we cannot fail to see. So the folks ask Peter, what can we do? What shall we do? Verse 37, what shall we do? We've heard that Jesus Christ is king, and we can see that we've not, we've, not, we've not always lived as though he was our king. We've not surrendered to his kingship. What shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, given, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they preached that there had to be repentance. And so this is what I'm saying. So it's one thing that you may go to churches and we may not preach Christ. They may not preach Jesus Christ. But it's another thing for folks to claim to preach Christ because they say his name. But, but not actually preach Christ because they don't preach the implications of him being Christ. If he's the king... And as the scriptures see it, 
we have all failed to surrender to his kingship, the Bible would say, in, in very scriptural terms, there needs to be this thing called repentance. So, so notice Peter says, repent every one of you. Every single one of you need to repent. So, so, so Peter cannot conceive. He looks at that audience and he thinks, everybody is guilty. No one is innocent. You need to repent. R repentance means to, to turn away, right? To, to, to turn around, uh, to, to do a 180, to go in the other direction. Very often in the, in, in the Old Testament, it had the, idea, the sense of, of, if you want, choosing another way of living, another life. We can't preach Jesus Christ faithfully, pre preach his kingship accurately without having to call people to turn their lives around. That is, you need to stop walking this path of rebellion. All of us, until we meet Jesus Christ, until we hear the word of God, we're, we're walking the path of rebellion. The way you're living is not, is, Jesus never goes to anybody and says, you're okay. You're fine the way you are. He doesn't say that to anyone. It doesn't matter how much those, how nice those words would sound. When it comes to the preaching of the gospel, once, once Christ's kingship is proclaimed, there's a duty to tell men and women that there's going to have to be a change, a turning around. I, I imagine that at this point, even Christians become somewhat ashamed of this, ashamed of having to tell people that actually to walk with Jesus requires a repentance. You have to see that the way you've been living was wrong. You have to see that not surrendering to his kingship was wrong. And I need to finally turn away from that. Why do some people not become Christians? Because they don't repent. They don't truly repent. They, 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 they hear the message. They see their need for God. They, they know they're sinners, but they just they won't turn. They don't want to turn. But the, what Peter said to them, in no uncertain terms, you have to repent. Now, the, the thing is, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. They were really hurt by what they heard. There was emotion being shown. They felt this. They, they felt the pain. They were ashamed. Peter had made them feel guilty. And when they say, what should we do? He still says, you have to turn. Right? And we, we have to proclaim that Jesus Christ will save you from your sin, but he won't leave you in your sin. Right? You, you can't have Christ and your sins. You, you have to turn. There has to be repentance. They preached repentance. That was the first, that's the preaching of the church. Uh, our preaching can, we can't, we can't make, our preaching can be no purer. We can't get any better than this. Of course, they also emphasize that the symbol that this repentance is happening, and a bit more, I would suggest, is that there is this baptism. So they say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, the church ha had the early symbol, which we still have now, and, and that's what we should think that baptism is. Baptism is, is the symbol that someone is repenting and turning to Jesus Christ, right? It's a symbol that we're, we're turning and receiving the promises of God, right? The promise is, as Peter says, the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign of that. Not so much that you, you uh, baptism is the evidence that you have repented. Not, not so much that baptism can forgive your sins, as, as, as so many folks have missed it. We know this because after this in the, in the book of Acts itself, there are people who get baptized but haven't truly repented. There are people who get baptized but haven't been forgiven of their sins. There are people who get baptized but don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism was symbolic of something that is truly taking place in your life, if, you've, if this is truly taking place, if you've repented and turned to Jesus, you get baptized. 
if you wanted the promises, so they proclaim promises, what does Jesus offer us? He offers us forgiveness of sin. That was the promise. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well, sometimes, friends, people get repent and get baptized so that they can have friends in the church. People repent and they get baptized so they can be accepted into the choir. You, you want to join the choir? You're a great singer. Well, to, to sing in this choir, you have to be baptized. That's not what baptism was meant to symbolize. That's not what repentance is. What Jesus gives you is the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes people repent and are baptized because they, they want a family problem solved. They, they repent and they're baptized because they want to be healthy. Maybe if I start following Jesus, I'll be healthier. The, the apostles never preached that. The church never preached that. Repentance and baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we turn to Jesus. So to repent is to say, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving this life of walking in my sins and, and just doing what I want, living life the way I want, and I'm receiving forgiveness. I, I need to be forgiven. And the gift of the Spirit. Now, at this point, Luke doesn't tell us that when these folks are baptized, they start to speak in tongues. And the general use of the, the, the or the general teaching on the gift of the Spirit, both in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, suggests that when Peter says to them, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's not saying that they will start to speak in tongues. Now, it's true that earlier in chapter 1, the, the evidence of the Spirit falling upon a group of Christians was, that they, was this phenomenon of speaking foreign languages. But... In the New Testament itself, the, the Spirit and the role of the Spirit is far broader than just gifts. It includes new life, right? The, the, spirit, the gift of the Spirit is to, to, have, is to be a new creature. The, 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 the gift of the Spirit is to put on the new man. It's, it's by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is formed in us. So that what Peter says, what Peter proclaims to these folks is that if they believe Jesus Christ and they repent, and they truly trust God, and this is symbolized by their baptism, they will not just have their sins forgiven, but God will give them new life. He will make them new people. They'll start to think differently. They'll start to feel differently. They'll start to walk and talk differently. God will change you. He'll give you His Holy Spirit. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he will make you a new person. And so he, the, 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 the preaching included the promises. They, 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 they appealed to people. This is why you should come to Jesus. This is why we call Jesus Christ King, because he's the only one who can ensure that your sins are forgiven. This is why we call Jesus Christ King, because he, he, he's the only one who can give you a new life. He can give you new character. He can make you right with God. This is why we proclaim Jesus. He's such a great king. He has such great gifts to give. There's great promises. It's the people who don't come to Jesus who lose. It's those who refuse to repent who perish. Come to Jesus, receive the free gifts of the forgiveness of sins. Come to Jesus and receive new life. That is a life that is surrendered to God, a life that is in tune with God. Naturally speaking, none of us want or desire God. We hate that which is good. We need God's Spirit to awaken us, to give us new life. But as they proclaim these promises, one more thing we see that they also proclaimed. And what I'm saying is we must be careful to ask if these things are present in our evangelism when we preach, right? Are we proclaiming Christ? Do we tell folks that they have to repent? And by and large, you pay attention to this, say, for example, this first presentation of the gospel, this first evangelistic effort by the church, and you will find that where these things are absent in preaching or in ministry, 
you're dealing essentially with, with false teaching. You're dealing with those who are not preaching the way of Christ faithfully when folks don't proclaim Jesus, when folks are, are afraid to, if someone's afraid to speak about Jesus because the doctrine is controversial, if someone's afraid to call people to repentance because they think it's, it's placing too much burden on them, let's leave them in their sin. Let's not say that they have to change that. Um, if someone refuses to make it clear that what Christ offers is forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, not simply that your sins are forgiven and then you carry on in your sin and you're the same person, but actually Christ transforms us. The other thing to say that they preached as well is that they proclaimed judgment though. They, 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 there was warning. There was warning about judgment. Notice in verse 40, it says, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them to to encourage them, to plead with them, to attempt to persuade them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. To, to come to Jesus is to heed the warning that the lives we're living, separate from God, will result in our judgment. There's warning there. You need to save yourselves. Jump ship. This, is a, this world is a, is a sinking ship. It also tells you the, the worldview of the disciples and how they saw the world around them. This is a crooked generation. The word means a perverse generation. The word means to say a generation that doesn't love the things that God loved, loves. So, so the, the, the apostles didn't look at the world and say, oh, this is, the world is, 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 is full of good people. This is, the world is lovely, it's just that uh, there are a few, it's, it's when we, it's just a misunderstanding that means that we're like this. No, they say this is a, it's a perverse generation. You choose Christ and be saved, uh, otherwise you perish with the world. There was warning in the preaching, save yourselves from this crooked generation. They warned them. We, we can't faithfully speak about Jesus without saying this. We can't faithfully speak about Jesus without us also telling people, listen, it's, it's fine that you have all this stuff, you know, all your watches and your cars and your houses. I'm happy for you. But if you don't trust Jesus Christ, you will perish with these things. We can't preach Christ faithfully without that sense of warning, the urgency of a warning. You need to save yourself. It's the kind of thing you say to someone who's in a burning house. This is, this is, this is, is, is not playground stuff. It's warning. This is not the kind of stuff that you can afford to be uh, equivocal about and say, well, you know, let's agree to disagree. There's, there's, there's the urgency of a warning. That's faithful preaching. That's faithful Christian ministry. That shows that we have truly grasped the message of the church when our teaching, our preaching, our discussion of the gospel is characterized by these things. This is fundamentally vital, of course, for the pulpit, but it's also true just for our daily witness. It's also true for how we communicate the gospel. Because just even in daily interactions at work and in family with friends, we may be so concerned to be, if you want to say, if you want to say politically correct, we, we may be so concerned to not appear to come across insensitive, and you shouldn't be insensitive, you have to think thoroughly through what you say. We may be so concerned not to offend, and in one sense, you shouldn't go out to offend, so, although the gospel does cause offense, right? We may be so concerned to do that, that we, we attempt to water down the gospel, to soften it, to round its edges, and I'm telling you, you start to do that, and you don't have the gospel. You don't have God's message. We must be careful just because a call to repentance offends someone doesn't mean that we can deny that there is a call to that. Just because we feel like we need to stop, people don't come to church a lot if all we offer them is forgiveness of sins and we should tell them that actually we're about um, uh, restoring young people and, and, and um, rehabilitating people. That's what we're about uh, because that's what brings people to church doesn't mean that we can distort the message. 
that actually all we have to, later on, it's in the next chapter, the disciples are going to say, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have, I give to you. It's in a different context, but the church has to use the same words. We don't have silver and gold. We don't have the influence. We don't have the power. We don't have the, the popularity. What we have, though, we give on to you. Do you, do you need to be cleansed from your sin? Do you see that you need to be made right with God? That's all we have to give. That was the preaching. That's the nature of the preaching. Let's take a look then now at the, 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 the people and their responses, how they responded. Again, Luke is careful to show us that in building the church, this was in adding to his church, in increasing to his church. As God began to work, as Jesus Christ began to work to establish his church, in this, in, in this snapshot we have of the church's evangelistic endeavors, there, there, there was the evidence of genuine conversion. There was the example. What does it look like if God is at work in the heart of a people? What does it look like when there's true Christian preaching and also spirit-ordained responses? I'm going to say in the next heading that that's exactly what it was. It was God that was working in them. What does that look like? Because then we also have to be careful for that as well. It helps us to know what genuine conversion looks like. It helps Christians, it helps people who are seeking God to begin to know that actually God is at work in their hearts. When they understand the effects that preaching Jesus, preaching the kingdom of Jesus has on people. In one sense, I want to say in the end, when you get in there, it's all, it's, 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 it's good. But on the way there, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a bringing low before you go up. Those who want to come to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, when you come into his kingdom, you're raised high to the highest point. You're seated in heavenly places. But before you get there, God shows you how lowly you are. The Bible says in verse 37, and I'll draw your attention to, just, I'll draw your attention to these, these few things uh, where, where, where Luke gives us insight into what the responses look like. What genuine, Christian, genuine responses, spirit-ordained responses look like. First of all, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a word in the, in the Greek that's, yeah, that's, that's as good as you can translate it. It's to cut. Uh, there was lacerations on the heart. In, in, the, in, in, in the Hebrew, it, it usually just, it, it, it conveys strong emotion, so varying kind of emotions. The word in, 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 when, when it's used in the, uh, in the Old Testament um, is very often used to translate words that can mean, you know, all the way from an angry response uh, to, uh, you know, a, a, a bitter emotional response kind of thing. Uh, but it generally, what it connotes is deep, painful emotion. There was emotion, right? The, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, 17th century, that's not true, 18th century, sorry, um, American author, well-known author, Jonathan Edwards, um, has a, a, a book entitled uh, Religious Affections. And in, in that book, jo Jonathan Edwards is exploring the, the fact that at the time, Jonathan Edwards had like overseen a, a revival. In his ministry, there had been loads of revivals, and there was loads of revivals in that area, and people started to question whether there was, whether some of these revivals were true, because sometimes they, there was strong emotion. People weeping for their sins for days. People just uncontrollably sobbing before they were sorry for their sins. And people, you know, people worry, like, is this, or is this, this is not hysteria. And, uh, you know, perhaps these guys were, were too polished to accept this kind of show of emotion. But Jonathan Edwards knew better. Now he, he, he writes his book and he, he speaks about the fact that, of course, there can be false emotion. People can cry all these tears before men, but never cry any to God. Call to the Lord and be saved. But Jonathan Edwards was also careful to say that there's such a thing as genuine religious affection. We, we can't forget this. 
There's no more, there's no more momentous a decision than coming to meet with Jesus Christ. There's nothing more significant. Nothing is going to change your life as much. Nothing will cost you as much. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. You, you will forsake it. Why do we think that reserved for Jesus Christ and his kingship will be the most smallest, insignificant display of emotion? I felt this so keenly last week when the euros were being rounded up. And I just, I, and I saw how much emotion I had poured just into the whole tournament. If it caught me at the wrong time, you know, like randomly a penalty shootout, and I'm engrossed, like knowing that at the end of this match, I will most likely get nothing. Sometimes it's like Ukraine playing Saudi Arabia or something. I have no, no investment in this, nothing. And yet for that 10 minutes, you, couldn't, you can't call me, can't disturb me. I'm tense, I'm sweating, I'm smiling. The whole of my human emotion offered at the feet of football. Why don't I think that there's something wrong with the fact that I never know the same thing with Jesus? Of course there's something wrong with that. I I'm telling people, Jesus affects everything. And it's not as simple as saying that you know you're a Christian because you felt some emotion. Of course not. But emotion for Jesus, but, but it's no less than a display of emotion for Jesus. The Bible refers to it as being brokenhearted. Some of you may know what it is to be brokenhearted. If, you know, maybe you've, uh, you've, uh, let me be careful here. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that will trigger you now. You've, you know someone that's been dumped. Huh? You know, think of how they feel, that person, when they, when they were dumped, or someone who their, their lover left them. Well, the pain, brokenhearted. The Bible says this is, this is the kind of thing that's taking place when sinners realize just how close they were to death just how deserving they are of death, just how much they wasted their giftings and they, they wasted their time serving idols. And they're cut to the heart. These folks, for these folks that Peter is speaking to, Peter accuses them of crucifying their savior. They're cut to the heart. We're, we're, we're the worst of people. You know what it means to say, that's a broken man. You know when you see someone who is, 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 is caught out for some wrong things they've done and they, they're really sorry and you say, that person is, is broken. There was the pain of feeling our sin. We, we call it sometimes, theologians call it a conviction of sin. I'm a sinner. There's the exposure of feeling like no one else can help me as I stand before God. We, we need to be careful to say that until people have known this, it's, 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 they haven't perhaps believed the gospel. Until they've had the conviction of sin at some level, until, I can, until I'm speaking to you and your sins are no longer something trivial, something to play with, until you realize that this nearly cost me my life, and you weep and you mourn for that. We have to be very careful to not judge according to false responses. What is an evangelistic response to the gospel? One of them is the grip of the awareness of my sin and the conviction. The conviction that I'm a sinner. Two more things quickly about the responses. Uh, Peter tells us in verse 41 that they were those who received his word. They received the word. So it wasn't just purely emotion. It wasn't just merely the emotional side of things. There was also an intellectual element. They understood something. They believed something. 
Right, so the Jesus that we crucified, he was ordained to be the king before the foundation of the world. And this guy has even said that when we thought God was building a throne for David in the Old Testament, but David died so he couldn't have been the king, this was the king that God was preparing things for. And we crucified him, but the, 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 the grave could not hold him. He loosed the agony. It was loosed from the agony and the horrors of death. Now he's risen, and he is the exalted king, the only one who can give us everlasting hope in God's kingdom. That's who I'm choosing to believe. They received the word. They understood what they believed. They knew what they had believed. This was not an evangelistic effort that bypassed the, the mental side of things. They were able to say what the gospel was. That's an evangelistic response. That's a response that gives us indication that God is at work when someone can say, I've received the word. They have the word in them. It's not just now coming from your lips, it's also coming from mine. It's not now flowing from your heart, it's also flowing in mine. I've received the word. So it says that there's that, there's an emotional response that cut to the heart. There's a intellectual response. They receive the word. There's, there's things to understand. Oh, you wouldn't believe just how much people are claiming to be making disciples, claiming to be adding to God's church, and bypassing the need for folks to understand the word. Everything but the word. Loads of dancing, loads of crying, loads of shouting, very little of the word. The third thing is to say that there wasn't just a response emotionally and a response intellectually. There was also a response, if you want, volitionally, in the will. They... they, 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 they they obeyed what they heard. So they received the word and were baptized. They, 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 they believed what, Jesus, what Peter had said about Jesus Christ. They were convinced. They were cut to the heart. And so they took a step of obedience. They, 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 they took a step that, yes, symbolized their faith, but it, it was faith that was working out itself in, in, in obedience. There was an obedience. They, 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 they obeyed Jesus Christ's command to come and be baptized. This is an evangelical response. It's one that reaches the whole person. You give all that you are to Jesus. It, we sometimes just call it faith. It is to surrender the emotion, to surrender the intellect, to surrender the will to Jesus, to hold none back from him. Say, I'm giving it all to you because you're the only one who can give me forgiveness of sins. I'm giving it all to you because you're the only one who can save me from the destruction to come. I'm giving it all to you because you're the only one who can give me your spirit and a new character. So we see this evangelistic preaching and response, and quickly we see that running right through all of it is the power of God. Luke is not ashamed to say that. He tells us, firstly, in verse 38, that Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it looks like Peter is asking merely for these folks to do something, something that's in their own strength. You have to repent. You have to give yourself to Jesus. But notice what Peter says right after that. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are afar off. Peter is coming to the point of saying, listen, God can call anybody. And he says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's interesting to see that Peter, as it were, evangelizing to folks and telling them that you have to repent. You have to turn away from your sin. You have to say, I'm done with this. I need Jesus. He's still not afraid to say that when all is said and done, you only come because God calls you. Again, in verse 41, Luke rounds it up. Those who received his word were baptized. Right? So there's that evangelistic response. These folks who are, they, 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 you're feeling the pain. 
They're, they're the ones feeling the pain. They're the ones going through the intellectual process, trying to understand what Peter has said. They're the ones who have to say to themselves, I'm, I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to be baptized today. They have to say to themselves, well, are you sure? If you get baptized, you're going to have to start following this Jesus, and you have to say, say no to the... To, to, that's going to bring problem, problems between you and your family and bring problems between you and, and those you work with. And you, you're going to have to give up your lifestyle. And, and they, they, they have to go through that and say, yeah, but I'm going, I, I need to identify with Jesus because the forgiveness of sins is worth more than anything else this world can offer. And so they say, I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be one of his, baptized into Jesus. They do all that. It's, 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 it's their brow that has sweat running down on it. It's, it's them. They step into baptism waters. And yet Luke says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was God who added them. None of the fact of the reality of human involvement and the human role and the fact that the Bible says, Peter was exhorting them. That means he was persuading them. He was pleading with them, change, please, stop doing this, turn to Jesus. He, he would argue with them. At least we know this is what happens in the New Testament. They would argue, they'd reason, they'd read together, they'll debate it, they'll try and break it down, they'll explain, they'll beg you, come, turn to Jesus. And when you do, they let you know it's only because God has called you. So by God's grace, only God can save a soul. Only God can change a person. Only God can give us new life. That's to say that the person who comes to Jesus strictly, straight away realizes that I'm only here by God's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not about anything that I've done. It's about everything that God has done. It's God who has called me. It's God who has brought me to himself. This was no mere human decision. This was divine power at work. God has called me. And they never lost sight of that, the way we often do in our churches today. Now again, remember what I'm saying. Believing that God is the one that adds to the church. So, so it's, it's God that plans the, the lifetimes of people and allows them to be raised in this kind of family, in this kind of nation, and migrate and move and so on, so that eventually they hear the gospel. It's God that does that. The fact that they believe this, that, that whoever God calls will come, never stop them from having the most robust form of evangelism. They preach powerfully. They preach lively, persuasively, and yet they knew that only God could save. So, so it's, not, it's nothing to do with, it's not true that, well, if we start to say only God can save, and only God, and, and, and salvation is by grace alone, that it means we won't evangelize. It wasn't true for the first church. It's something that's wrong with us. But they knew that it was God's power. Only God's power saves. And so you can imagine they prayed for God to pour out his power. And you can imagine that, Peter was not afraid to preach to anyone because he knew it was not ultimately a matter of human will. It was God who saves. Friend, that's the evangelism of the church, of the first church. And as I said, we can be no purer, we can be no better. Surely the same God who added 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost is the God who adds to his church today. So what does that mean? If we truly are relying on God to add, in, to add to his church, then we must surrender ourselves to his way. We must proclaim the same Jesus. It doesn't matter if it seems like it's getting old-fashioned. We have to proclaim the same Jesus, and we must preach the same way. We must call folks to repentance. We must call folks to be baptized. We must call folks to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. We must warn folks the world might want to sing a song of kumbaya and peace. They might want to sing about world peace. We must warn them, this is a crooked generation. Right? We can't say to ourselves, I don't want to be called a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm not sure that you need to be that, whatever that is. But there's warning. 
it's not, listen, no, the, the idea that there's no warning here, that I think everything's okay with you is a lie. It's not true. I don't think everything is fine. I don't think that just because you have riches and wealth and so everything's okay. I don't think that. I don't think this world is a good place. I don't think that. I can't if I want to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus. There's warning there. But here's the big thing, brothers and sisters. The world might laugh at that. The world might have very short, a short time for that. The world might oppose that. They might give a short shrift for that. They might, they might insult us for that. But God will add to his church. God will add souls to his church. He will really do that. Everything else will be gimmicks. Jesus will add to his church. He will keep and save them. We have to decide what we want to see. We have to decide what we want to see. Do we want to see God adding souls? Or are we so, held, are we so concerned to impress the world? And the last thing I'll say this evening is we have to hear the voice of Jesus Christ in the message of his apostles. It's the same as it was back then. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Every single one of you. If you haven't been, if you haven't repented, if you haven't seen your need for the Savior, Jesus Christ warns you, you have to, you have to repent. It is Christ, it is Christ to every, every single one of us this evening. The king on his throne says, now turn from a life of living for yourself. God made you for himself. God made you to worship and to serve him. You didn't do that. You've lived for yourself. You've, you've disobeyed his laws. Well, now the king is on his throne. Judgment has come in. But he, he hasn't come to destroy. Judgment will come, but only if you refuse to repent. If you want to avoid the destruction that's coming upon this generation. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's spirit. New life lived in the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen.